hey, there's a show you might want to know about. Now in its tenth season, Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a podcast about tragedy, triumph, unequal justice, and actual innocence. Based on the files of the lawyers who represent them, together with other criminal justice activists and experts, Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom features interviews with men and women who have spent years in prison for crimes they did not commit, some of them having even been sentenced to death. These are their stories. Look for Wrongful Conviction wherever you listen to podcasts. So the results are in, and a lot of us Americans are trying to make sense of ourselves and one another. Donald Trump pounded the drums of autocracy and white identity more loudly and clearly than any presidential candidate in modern American history, and he won. 60 million votes and the presidency. The outcome shocked some people, especially liberal white folk. Lots of people of color are giving the shocked ones the side eye and saying, oh, we knew you all had it in you. Whether it should have surprised us or not, the election has set off a spasm of national soul-searching. Just who are we after all? I'm John Bewin. It's Seen on Radio, a show that asks what's it really like out there and leaves the studio to find out. Many times before, artists and thinkers and journalists have found reason to probe the nation's character. Is the America that elected Donald Trump the same country it was six years ago? The nation that had chosen its first black president and would soon re-elect him? How about the U.S. of two generations ago? In 2010, I flew around the country and spent time with artists in a half dozen places, from New York to North Dakota to California. We are standing on the dock. It's a pier that juts out into the bay. We're in the Farberg Marigny area of New Orleans. So we're in downtown Monterey. Okay, we're going to be into the Redwoods here. They were all places that the great American writer John Steinbeck had visited in 1960, when he drove the country to write his last major book, Travels with Charlie in Search of America. Yeah, in 1960 when Steinbeck came through. Uh, he drove through Fargo-Moorhead. As part of his journey, he comes home again. He comes to a small area outside of Spokane and finds a little place to stay. He pulled off as we just did, probably in this exact spot. 50 years ago. Steinbeck, of course, wrote novels that searched the national spirit. The Grapes of Wrath, Of Mice and Men, East of Eden. By 1960, he was getting older and had health problems. He felt the need for an adventure. He also wrote in the first pages of Travels with Charlie that he'd found himself out of touch. For many years, I have traveled in many parts of the world. In America, I live in New York or dip into Chicago or San Francisco. But New York is no more America than Paris is France, or London is England. Thus, I discovered that I did not know my own country. That voice, by the way, reading Steinbeck, that's Sean Cole, the wonderful radio guy now with This American Life. I asked Sean to be the voice of Steinbeck for this episode, not because he sounds like the man. He really doesn't. Here's a recording of Steinbeck. I have not uh, uh, gone back through Arkansas and Oklahoma, which you call the Dust Bowl area. Uh, but just I because I, I like listening to Sean. So when you hear Sean's voice... And I'll do the last line flatter so that it's not 
so angry. Or maybe I'll do the whole thing flatter. You'll know that's a passage from Travels with Charlie. Charlie, of the book title, was Steinbeck's standard poodle. In the fall of 1960, during the campaign that elected John Kennedy, Steinbeck took his dog and climbed into a makeshift camper truck. He named the camper Rosinante, after Don Quixote's horse. Over three months, he and the dog made a giant 10,000-mile loop from one coast to the other and back again. Steinbeck put down his experiences, some real and probably some imagined, in Travels with Charlie. The book was published in 1962, the same year Steinbeck won the Nobel Prize for Literature. For my project, 50 years later, I did not take a dog along. I did carry a stereo microphone and went to some key spots on Steinbeck's itinerary. In each place, I collaborated with an artist who lives and works there. Those diverse artists, men and women, gay and straight, black, white, Latina, and Native American, will take turns guiding us on this journey over the next few episodes. They reflect on Steinbeck's discoveries and talk back to him across time. John Steinbeck's point of departure, and ours, is Sag Harbor, New York. It's an old fishing village near the tip of Long Island. Steinbeck lived there in 1960. Meet the painter who will show us around. We are standing on the dock of Steinbeck's house. It's a pier that juts out into the bay. And I don't use this phrase usually, but it is a picture-perfect day. The sun is dappling off the water. This is the time after the tourists have left that people really love and can enjoy themselves and enjoy uh, the, the freedom from all the traffic and noise. My name is David Slater. I am 70 years old. Uh, I'm an artist. I grew up on Long Island. I've lived in Sag Harbor for 28 years, and I love it here. In my little corner of the world. Well, we're walking out on a little uh, piece of land. This is the furthest extension of this point towards a very tiny house. It's a hexagonal gazebo. This is where he would go and write. I mean, he just wanted to be alone, and I understand this as an artist. Sometimes that's your most precious thing. Oh, here it is in the ground. A-R-O-Y-N-T. Aroint. Which means go away. And I think it's from, um, it's Old English. And I think it's a sh uh, from a, one of Shakespeare's plays. I am reading from the beginning of Travels with Charlie. I, an American writer, writing about America, was working from memory. I, an American writer, writing about America, was working from memory. And the memory is at best a faulty, warpy reservoir. I had not heard the speech of America, smelled the grass and trees and sewage, seen its hills and water, its color and quality of light. I knew the changes only from books and newspapers. But more than this, I had not felt the country for 25 years. When I laid the ground plan for my journey, there were definite questions to which I wanted matching answers. I suppose they could all be lumped into the single question, what are Americans like today? 1960 really was a big transition, or the 60s, early 60s. Americans now are, I, I think we're in another transition, a big transition, and people are not really sure what Americans are like. 
there's a lot of desperation right now. People are very, you know, really concerned. A young man, Lance Corporal Jordan Herter, uh, I remember seeing him walk around the streets in Sag Harbor, just a high school kid, joined the Marines, deployed in Iraq for, you know, three weeks, and a vehicle came down the road. He, he suspected that it was a, a suicide bomber. He opened fire on the vehicle. He killed the driver, kept the vehicle from going any further into the compound, which would have killed about 30 more people. But in the explosion of this dynamite-filled vehicle, he was killed. And the emotional response to this guy in this town is, is, was, is so intense. Uh, they had a parade and his body came through here and they, you know, and he was honored. He was the first casualty killed in battle uh, since World War II from Sag Harbor. I think that part of the reason that Steinbeck liked Sag Harbor is he, he found working people here who they were more real to him. And, and, and in, the, in the world of art, and I'm sure it's the same is true in literature, there's a, there's a certain elitism and snobbism. And he, he said, I'm just a working man myself. My work is, is that I write. I call myself a full-time artist, and I call myself uh, a full-time worker in other fields. So I'm actually working two full-time jobs simultaneously. I just started to work with the work that was available, and a lot of it is in the building trades. Did house painting, my first recognition as a painter. <laughs> I need a new car. <laughs> People think that if you live in Sag Harbor or you're from this area, that you're rich. And uh, we're standing within uh, less than 100 yards of where a friend of mine lives out in a, in a, a dumpster. There are poor people, myself included. I mean, I've had some rough times due to the recession. For a couple of winters, I've had to go to the food pantry to get food. I had read Steinbeck a lot in the 50s and all of the major works and was especially blown away by Grape's Wrath, which is apparently, you know, considered, I guess, to be his masterpiece. I think Steinbeck would be horrified at the age we live in now. This is the, uh, the central flagpole in the village of Sag Harbor. Right after the uh, September 11th event, I did a painting about September 11th. And one of the collage elements that I put onto this was a piece of this flag that had torn off the top. You can see the top of the flag is frayed. It's, it's very heavy wind up there. I collaged it onto my canvas. This is another passage from the book Travels with Charlie. I pulled Rosinante into a small picnic area maintained by the state of Connecticut and got out my book of maps. And suddenly, the United States became huge beyond belief and impossible ever to cross. I wondered how in hell I got myself mixed up in a project that couldn't be carried out. It was like starting to write a novel. When I face the desolate impossibility of writing 500 pages, a sick sense of failure falls on me, and I know I can never do it. So it was now, as I looked at the bright colored projection of Monster America. That's a reading of John Steinbeck from Travels with Charlie, 
we heard from David Slater in Sac Harbor. Do not aroint, don't go away, we've got a whole nother place to visit. When Steinbeck took his travels with Charlie Tripp, he drove across the northern tier of the country, then back through the south. In retracing his journey, I'm taking liberties. We're going to move across the country just once, east to west. So next up, New Orleans. Steinbeck stopped there in the fall of 1960 to witness history, public school desegregation, and the bitter response of many white folk. Steinbeck was just passing through. Our guide in New Orleans was a child at the time. He lived that story day after day. We're in the Faubourg Marigny area of New Orleans. It's um, immediately across the street from the French Quarter. We're sitting in Washington Park. It's a one square block green space in one corner, swings and things for children. And what you hear um, uh, in the background of school children who are here, it's hard to imagine that anybody would want all of these kids to fail or some of these kids to fail, or any of these kids to fail. This is my story. My name is Kalamu Yasalam. This is my song. I am a writer, educator, and filmmaker. I will sing these here blues, though they done stole, stole my tongue. Yeah, in 1960, when Steinbeck came through, I was born in 1947, I was 13 years old. He came to look at France school and what was happening there. And France was an elementary school where integration, what some people would say forced integration was going on. Late in 1960, Steinbeck wrote, the incident most reported and pictured in the newspapers was the matriculation of a couple of tiny Negro children in a New Orleans school. was the matriculation of a couple of tiny Negro children in a New Orleans school. Behind these small dark mites were the law's majesty and the law's power to enforce. Both the scales and the sword were allied with the infants, while against them were 300 years of fear and anger and terror of change in a changing world. This bitter earth Well, what the fruit it bears. Uh, when France happened, the school I went to, Rivers Frederick Jr. High School, was located in the seventh ward. I lived in the lower ninth ward. In order to get to school, I would catch a bus, the Galvis bus. And the Galvis bus passed right in front of France School. So we saw what was going on there. And one of the guys that rode the bus with us was in the band. And for about a week, instead of carrying a trombone in his case, he carried a shotgun. Because it had become just that dangerous. What made the newsmen love the story? What made the newsmen love the story was a group of stout, middle-aged women who, by some curious definition of the word mother, gathered every day to scream invectives at children. No newspaper had printed the words these women shouted, but now I heard the words, bestial and filthy and degenerate. These were not mothers, not even women. They were crazy actors playing to a crazy audience. To a crazy audience. 
Steinbeck is doing what many of us do. When we see something that we find horrific, first thing we do is dehumanize it. And the second thing we do is pretend it's not us. When the truth is that one major part of the human condition is the ability to be inhuman. And all humans have that within them. And we must struggle with that. Um, we're walking on Frenchman towards the river. Oh. The river that way! <laughs> I'm struggling to give you sound bites because sound bites don't explain the complexity of New Orleans. I believe that this country has made tremendous um, legal developments. There's a big difference between segregation being legal and segregation being illegal. Is that big difference addressing the problem? No. Here's a sound bite for you. Race was never the problem in America. That was a symptom of the problem. The problem was the economic appropriation and exploitation of land and labor. This is stolen land, land stolen from the Native Americans, and the expropriation uh, of labor through slavery made it possible to kickstart a capitalist economy that could not have gotten grown as quickly as it did any other way. Those who own never intended to share. And so instead of sharing, what they did was told you, then black people's your problem. Here comes the conquistadors all the way to right now. The whole history of America balled up into one sound coming at you at the same time. Can you hear the whole history of your And right now in New Orleans, what we have is forced resegregation going on in the schools. On paper, all of these schools are open to anybody, right? Except they don't have room for everybody. And so now you have schools that are doing, providing excellent education. New Orleans knows how to, whether you talk about arts education, science education, whatever, they can do it. But they don't want to do it for everybody. And part of the reason is because the industry in New Orleans is tourism. If every student in New Orleans graduated from high school could learn to read and write, how many of them do you think are going to want to be maids and doormen in hotels? The best indicator of how a student will do on a test, it's the economic level of the parents. Okay, we're waiting for this helicopter to pass. I don't know what they're looking for. This privatization of education is presented to people as choice. But what choice do you have if your whole community is dying? It's hard to imagine that anybody would want all of these kids to fail, or some of these kids to fail, or any of these kids to fail. But if all of these, the young people in this part graduated from high school, all of them could not work in New Orleans, commensurate with their, their education. It makes me feel like I'm no longer under the deck, but I'm still on the slave ship. 
We're not free yet. Not by long shot. Not by long shot. Sometimes you start something and it it stops. So I did this album called My Story, My Song. It's a series of duets with New Orleans musicians whom I knew. Walter Washington, who was a blues musician, who was playing uh, tonight on Frenchman Street, the street we just passed. This is called Unfinished Blues. This is uh, John Steinbeck, Travels with Charlie, In Search of America. He set off with a dog going looking for America. I don't know if he found it. I have not intended to present, nor do I think I have presented, any kind of cross-section so that a reader can say he thinks he has presented a true picture of the South. I don't. I've only told what a few people said to me and what I saw. I don't know whether they were typical or whether any conclusion can be drawn. But I do know it is a troubled place and a people caught in a jam. And I know that the solution, when it arrives, will not be easy or simple. Writer, filmmaker, and educator, Kalamu Yasalam. Coming right up, a preview of the next episode. But first I want to tell you about a new Thanksgiving tradition I'm starting, if only just for myself. Each day for a week, I'm going to do a rating and review on iTunes for a podcast that I listen to and enjoy. One each day for a week, in a spirit of thankfulness. If you like the idea, join me. Next time on Scene on Radio, more of our travels with Mike. We take a drive with a photographer on the flatlands of North Dakota. And in Northern California's Indian country, all of the houses on the, on the coast here are made of, of redwood. So this is something that, again, that John Steinbeck didn't see when he passed through here. That's next time, and tune in to see who plays Steinbeck in the next episode. Thanks to Sean Cole for doing it this time. Besides the 1960 songs by Anita Bryant and Dinah Washington, music on this episode by Blue Dot Sessions, by Kevin McLeod and by Lucas Bewin and his old man. Follow me on Twitter at Scene on Radio. Like our Facebook page. The website is sceneonradio.org. The show comes from CDS, the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University.